Our text this morning comes from Habakkuk 1, 1 to 13 in the NIV. Um, if you have a Bible, please join with us. If, if you prefer to use your phone or your iPad or whatever it is, join us at Habakkuk 1. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings, not for their own, not their own rather. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities by building earthen ramps to capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose strength is their God. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate this treacherous, the treacherous rather? Why are you silent when, while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mark, for leading us in prayer and reading that incredibly uplifting scripture passage for us this morning. Uh, I suppose if, uh, if you were to have a competition to name the weirdest book in the Bible, or what, what book in the Bible has the weirdest name, uh, Habakkuk would probably win. I suppose maybe uh, Haggai could be a close second, uh, but certainly Habakkuk is weird. It's hard to spell. Is it two Bs? Is it two Ks? It's hard to pronounce. Is it Habakkuk, like I'm saying, or is it supposed to be Habakkuk? We don't actually know, uh, so I'm going to say Habakkuk, and I hope that doesn't drive you crazy if you're used to Habakkuk. Um, the meaning of that name is kind of uh, mysterious. We think it means embracer or possibly even wrestler. Um, 
The, the book of Habakkuk is very short. It's part of what's called the, the group of minor prophets, and that doesn't mean that uh, Habakkuk or any of the other minor prophets are less important than the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. It just means that they are short. Habakkuk's only three chapters long. Um, but we're, we're going to actually spend a few weeks in this little tiny prophecy found at the back of the second third of your Bible. I don't know if that helps to describe it that way, but anyhow, um, because this little book packs a major, major punch. And this is why we're going to look at it, because Habakkuk actually faced uh, an occasion similar to the one we're facing today. Uh, we are obviously living in troubled times, right? We're, we're facing hard times. Some among our own community have lost their jobs. Many of us are worried about potentially losing our income. Perhaps we have a business that we're losing. We're, we're worried about our health. Um, these are confusing days for us. Um, you know, and we've been praying our hearts out to God. Because it looks like in, in this incredibly short period of time, it's like our, almost, our, our entire civilization is crumbling all around us. And so we're scared and we're confused and we've got questions for God. We're, we're saying to God, what's going on here? Why are you doing this? Why are you letting this happen? Um, why won't you stop it? Would it be so hard to stop it? And, and will I be okay? Will my, my family be okay? Will my town be okay? Will my church be okay? Will my country be okay? Will the world be okay? And, and the thing is, is that right now, for some people, it feels like God is silent. Like he's not responding at all. And in fact, you're praying and praying and praying, and it just seems like things are getting worse. Habakkuk can relate. Man, oh man, can he, he relate. His circumstances are certainly different, but his questions are very much the same as ours. He's suffering. He is in a troubled time in the history of his nation and his own personal history, and he is praying his heart out to God. He's scared, and he's confused. And like us, he's crying out to God. And, and for him, like us, at first, it seems like God is silent. And God eventually answers. And there are great lessons to be learned from the book of Habakkuk. Lessons that, I'll be honest with you, friends, uh, some of them are going to be tough. They're going to be tough for us to learn, but we need to learn them. Because if we would learn the hard ones these hard lessons, and if we would embrace the promises that are granted to us in this prophecy and even in those hard lessons, we can handle troubled times like the one we're facing. For some of us, maybe that sounds ridiculous and it sounds crazy uh, because it feels like you can't handle much of anything. You can barely handle a 24-hour time period, let alone all the other stuff that's happening in the world around us. Well, if you'll just journey with me, I hope and pray that uh, as we go through this series together over the next several weeks in the book of Habakkuk, then that some of your questions will be answered, probably not all at once, okay? They won't all be answered today, that's for sure. But hopefully many of your questions will be answered. And hopefully what you'll see is that, that the God who is in control of, 
of this COVID pandemic is still a good God, has got a good plan for his people, and has not abandoned you, has not forsaken you, has not turned his back on you. In fact, he will use this to bring about something beautiful that glorifies him and that actually uh, causes you to flourish. So let's dive in to this prophecy of Habakkuk together and see what lessons we can learn from it. And actually the first lesson that we can learn from it uh, doesn't come from the text itself. It comes from the context in which Habakkuk was written. I have to give you a little bit of Israel, Israelite history for you to understand where we're at. I think it will be helpful for you. If you go back in history, and you can read about this in the book of Samuel and First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, uh, Israel kind of came to the height of its power as a nation under King David. And of course, King David ruled for 40 years after he died. His son Solomon took the throne. And uh, like I said, they were sort of at the height of their glory and their influence in the world. But eventually, of course, Solomon dies as well. And what happens is, is there's a power vacuum in the nation. And there's a bunch of infighting. So to the point where the nation of Israel actually splits into two different kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom, which is the nation of Israel. And you have the southern kingdom, which is the nation of Judah. And both nations, after Samuel, begin a pretty steady decline into idolatry, into syncretistic religion, into violence, into selfishness. And it gets so bad that eventually, at one point, the north uh, is attacked and captured by by the, the Assyrians, and it disappears as a nation altogether. And all you have left is the nation of Judah in the south. Now you'd think, you'd think that having seen what happened to Israel, their northern brothers and sisters uh, in the nation of Israel, you'd think that, that Judah, having seen that, that they would have learned something from that and they would have turned from their idolatrous ways and their sinful ways and they would have repented and they would have turned, their, turned themselves back to God. Well, that doesn't happen. And they fall deeper and deeper into sin to the point where they have a king whose name is Manasseh, and he is the worst king ever. And for 50 years, 50 years, he reigns over Judah, and he just keeps taking them deeper and deeper and deeper into wickedness and sin. He dies. His son Ammon um, comes on the throne. He only lasts for a couple years, thankfully, but he's no better than his father. All told... For 77 years, okay, there is a straight decline in the nation of Judah towards wickedness. But then, after Ammon, a boy by the name of Josiah, Ammon's son, becomes king of Judah. He's known as the boy king because he becomes king at at only age eight. And I can imagine some of you with kids in that age range thinking like, what would it be like if, if my kid was in charge of our household? We'd probably fall into disaster pretty quickly. And um, you'd expect that for the nation of Judah too, but that's not what happens. In fact, uh, something happens to Josiah. He goes through a revival or a renewal experience. By the age of 16, he devotes himself to God and he begins some, some reforms. And one of the big ones is he begins the rebuilding of the temple. And while they're rebuilding the temple... Uh, they discover 
a copy of the law, the Torah, the first five books of Moses, which had been lost and hadn't been read for a long time. Josiah reads it. He's convicted by it. He's overcome by it. He, be, he repents on behalf of the people of Israel of Judah, and then he brings them all together, and he reads it to them, and the whole nation repents of their sin. And they, you know, a, a worldwide, not a worldwide, a nationwide revival breaks out where, where the whole nation is turning back to God, and it affects every aspect of their culture. And it's quite remarkable. Now, during Josiah's reign, there were three world powers. I already mentioned one, Assyria, but there was also Egypt and there was Babylon. And Egypt and Assyria are sort of starting to, to wane. And Babylon, this incredibly ruthless nation, is in ascendancy. Now, at one point, Nico, the king of Egypt, he wants to go attack Assyria. But in order to do that, he has to go through Judah. So he asks Josiah, hey, can I go through Judah to go attack Assyria? Josiah says, no, you may not do that. Nico says, who are you, you piddly little country? He starts going through anyway. So Josiah sends his army out to fight uh, the Egyptians. And they have this battle at Megiddo. Now, Josiah, he, he uh, was I trying to say? Oh, yeah. Josiah, he goes undercover and disguises himself as a soldier so that he can fight with his people. A really dumb idea, okay? It seems noble, but it turns out badly because, as you guessed it, he gets killed in the middle of the battle. And, of course, because he's dead, now his son Jehoiakim, or sorry, Jehoahaz, Jehoahaz, becomes king. And he's an idiot, like his grandfather. And he reigns terribly. Nico comes back from Assyria, down through Judah. He actually kidnaps Jehoahaz and takes him back to Egypt. And then he puts Jehoahaz's brother, Jehoiakim, on the throne. And he's an even bigger idiot than his brother. Okay? And for 11 years, they go straight to destruction under Jehoiakim. All the reforms of Josiah are undone and the land is plunged completely into chaos. There is violence, moral ineptitude, a collapsing economy, food shortages. Things could not have gotten worse. So after 38 years of reform and good times and, and progress and positivity, everything falls apart in like a decade. That's the context in which Habakkuk writes. Now, what do we learn from all of that? This is what we learn. The world goes through good times and it goes through bad times. This is the cycle of history, in fact. It goes through good times, like under Josiah, where for 38 years things were progressing. We as a culture, as a society, we have been going through a pretty extended period of good times. Now, I know that there have been bumps along the way. There have been significant, uh, um, uh, what's that word? There have been significant drawbacks or, or, or um, anyhow, two, 2008, for example, uh, we had a financial crisis and a lot of people lost a, a lot of money. But if you compare that crisis to what economists are forecasting we're about to face, it's nothing in comparison. The economy shrunk by 
during the 2008 financial crisis and it plunged us into a recession. Economists are forecasting that we will, that our economy will shrink by 3% this year. It will be three times worse. So recently in the West, we have been going through good times. If you compare us to the first half of the 20th century, there's no comparison. The first half of the 20th century saw a world war, first world war, then it saw the Great Depression, then it saw the the Second World War and the Holocaust. And so for decades, decade after decade after decade, things were not getting better. Things just seemed to be getting worse. For a very long time, people were just scraping by, even here in North America, just as some people are just scraping by in other places around the world, and that's normal for them. That has not been normal for us, and it was, it was the case back then. And we may wonder, they were wondering, would the world ever get better? Would good times ever return? We today have an entire generation that knows nothing of that kind of hardship. Nothing. I, I know this because I'm part of it. I'm a Gen Xer. We know nothing of these kinds of hardships. We know very little of these kinds of, of struggles and difficulties because we haven't had to live through anything. And so when bad times come, for us, people like me, we're shocked by them. We can't believe them. They, they rattle our worldview. We are completely freaked out by it and we cannot handle it because we're so ill-equipped. We don't have the resilience for it, you see. Are we on the cusp of evil times and troubled times right now? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know we better be prepared. You know, I, I used to say to you guys, uh, I don't, I used to, I have said to you guys before, the church needs to prepare itself for the future by having a robust theology of suffering. I always thought we needed to prepare for that because it seemed like religious freedoms in the West were starting to be eroded more and more by our increasingly secular culture. I never for a second anticipated God bringing the world to its knees with a tiny little bug. And yet here we are. How do we handle troubled times? Well, let's look up at Habakkuk because he helps us. In troubled times, what did Habakkuk do as he saw his society falling apart around him? <laughs> he cried out to God. He took his complaint to the only place that makes sense. In verses 2 and the first part of verse 3, it says, How long, Lord? Must I call for help, but you do not listen or cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate long, uh, wrongdoing? Now, we're going to get to what's meant by his complaint, but, but I want to emphasize something for you a moment first. Notice I said that he takes it to the only place that makes sense. He takes it to God. Now, here's why this is the only place that makes sense. Here we are in a worldwide pandemic. We are facing an evil. It's not moral evil per se, but it is evil. It is suffering. And we want to know why. And whether you're religious or irreligious, doesn't really matter. You want to know why. It's a, it's a natural human instinct to say, why is this happening? To try to make sense of it. We are meaning-making creatures, and so we have to ask that question. But, but where do you go for the answer? See, if the atheist 
the atheist has nowhere to go, really, for the answer. And, and frankly, if an atheist is utterly consistent, they don't actually have a problem with what's happening. Because you see, according to atheism, the whole universe, the whole world, is simply the result of random evolutionary forces. And so pandemics, like this one, they just come and go. They're not good or bad. There's no reason behind them. They just are. Okay? And in Eastern religions, God is believed to be everything. He exists in everything. He, everything is part of God. And ultimate reality is spiritual. It's not physical. It's not material. It's, it's spiritual. We need to get beyond the physical and the material. And suffering that's caused by pandemics or any other kind of suffering is part of the material world. And therefore, it's really just an illusion. And in Islam, Allah is the creator equally of both good and evil, and good things happen or evil things happen simply as a result of what Allah wants, depending on what he wants for his pleasure. But for Christians, it's a problem. Why is this happening? Why are we suffering? It's a tough, tough question. And what Habakkuk does is, is he does the only sensible thing, which is he goes to God for an answer. Look at verse 12. He says, Lord, are you not from everlasting? Now, he's not asking God if he's really everlasting, meaning infinite, eternal, never-ending, right? He's not, he's not asking God this question as if he's like, hey, I, I, I just wonder, what, like, what kind of God are you? Can you explain that to me again? Are you everlasting? Do you have a beginning or an end? Or are you infinite or what? He knows that God is everlasting. In fact, that's why he goes to God. See, he's making assumptions about the character of God. He knows that God is supposed to be good. In verse 12, he says, my God, my holy one. You will never die. He's affirming two things. He's affirming the perfect character of God, the perfect nature of God, that God is pure, holy. Uh, there is no sin in him. There is nothing evil in him. There is no shortcoming in him. There is no weakness in him. He is purely holy. And he's also affirming that God is in absolute and total control. In other words, that God is sovereign over everything over the entire universe and every single itty-bitty individual thing that happens in it. In verse 12, notice what he says. O Lord, you, O Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. He's talking about the Babylonians. Babylonians we're going to get to all that next week. But notice he says, you appointed them. And then he says, you have ordained them to punish Habakkuk knows something. He knows that the trouble that he is facing in that moment is not outside of God's control. Not at all. And so it makes sense to go to God with your complaint. Now, I'm not saying that it's easy to go to God with your complaint. I'm not saying that it will make sense to hear God's answer to your complaint. I'm just saying it makes sense for you to go to God with your complaint. And that's what he does. 
simple application. I'm going to get back to it at the end, but let me just make it super clear. Go to him. You're mad. You're upset. You're freaking out. You're scared out of your tree. Go to him. Don't for a second think that you're not allowed to. Let's move on and I'll flesh that out a little bit more. Look how Habakkuk goes. He is incredibly bold or blunt or honest, however you want to put it. And he is incredibly persistent. Again, verses two and three. How long must I call for help, but you don't listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you don't save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Think of the nerve, okay? We've just talked about how Habakkuk knows who he's talking to. He knows who he's going to. He's going to the almighty, holy God who created and sustains the universe just by the word of his power. And he kind of blurts this stuff out at him. It's like an accusation. Why, why, why? Can you, can you relate to that? Have you, ever, have you ever been in a situation where you've been just really hurt and really upset and really freaking out over something and you just kind of lash out? Maybe at your girlfriend or your boyfriend or, or at your parents or, or at a spouse or at a friend. You just kind of, you, you, you just explode. You say stuff without thinking. And here's the thing. You want to say, no, 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 I didn't mean that. But you actually did. You did mean it. What happened was, was you lost control. It's the stupidest thing in the world to say, sorry, I lost my temper. That's not me. No, when you lose your temper, you're showing the true you. That's what I had to learn. But that's who I, I am, and so I've got to actually deal with the anger underneath the temper. But that's a whole other uh, sermon. My point is this. You, when you're losing it, you lose it. And that's what Habakkuk does right here. He knows who he's talking to. He calls him, verse 12, Lord. He calls him, my God. He calls him, my Holy One. He calls him, my rock. He knows who he's talking to. He has not lost sight of God's character. And so it's so stupid that he would talk the way he does, but he does it anyway. He can't help it. And he's very persistent. Verse 2, why? Why? And then here's the thing. Verses 5 to 11, God answers. And we're going to look at that more next week. But Habakkuk, he doesn't like the answer. He doesn't like the answer. So he comes at God again. Verse 13, why do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than, than themselves? Why is this in here? Why is this brash, bold, honest, impetuous, nagging of God by a prophet of God in the Bible? Well, Derek Kidner, an Old Testament scholar, he, he says that, that these kinds of things, and you'll see them in other places, not in many, mind you, but in other places like Psalm 39 or uh, what's that other one? Psalm 88. The reason these are in the Bible is to show us 
how compassionate, how gracious, how understanding God is. They're there to show us that God knows how we speak when we're desperate. Look at verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. Habakkuk is almost there with the way he's behaving, and God hears him anyway. Why? How is that possible? Well, listen, friends, it's possible because God always relates to his people according to grace, always has, always will. See, God is not our God because we put on a happy face. God is not our God because we have a stiff upper lip. God is not our God because we know how to grin and bear it. God is not our God because we never freak out or we never have a fit or we never question his ways. God is our God by grace. By grace. In chapter 2, verse 4, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but in chapter 2, verse 4, it says, the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Or as other translations put it, the righteous person will live by his faith, not by his performance. See, this is something Habakkuk understood. I'm not entirely sure how Habakkuk understood it. Nobody in the Bible is so brash with God as Habakkuk is. But here's the thing. When you know that God relates to you by grace, when you know that you don't have to clean up and straighten up and fly right and act properly in order to get his ear, your heavenly father, when you know that, you can just go to him with your pain, even if it's, if it's a ranty, ravey, whacked out, completely irrational cry of anguish. You can do that. And here's why you and I can do that. Listen, centuries after Habakkuk, there was another man who cried out in anguish to God. There was another man who cried out, my God. But it was God's son, Jesus Christ. And when he cried out, he didn't get an answer. Habakkuk's going to get an answer. He didn't get an answer and he didn't get rescued. He got nothing. But he did that. He took that so that so that you and I will always get an answer. God may delay in his answer. He may, he may be slow by our standards in responding, but he will never abandon us. Never. Because Christ was abandoned for us. You know, Habakkuk, Habakkuk is, is showing us how we are like, Little kids, this, this actually happened to me, okay? So I know what I'm talking about. Um, here's a kid who, who plays a sport. Let's say he plays soccer, and his parents drop him off 
at their soccer practice and off they go and the kid has practice and then after practice the kid goes to uh, the sidewalk or the curb or whatever and is waiting to get picked up and the parent doesn't come by and a little bit of time goes by and the other kids are getting picked up and few and few, fewer and fewer people are around at the soccer field and the kid starts to worry and they go did God forget me like what's up or not God did my parent forget me And as time goes on, and as they wait a little longer, they begin to get anxious, and then they begin to get afraid, and they start going to themselves, well, where are they? And they start to believe that the delay is actually desertion. They become completely irrational. They say, well, they must have abandoned me. They must not care about me. And then... You know, another mom comes up or another dad comes up and, and goes up to the child and says, hey, just so you know, because this, this is before cell phones, okay? <laughs> just so you know, your mom called me, told me that she's running a little bit late. She's on her way. She'll be here soon. And now the kid has an anchor. Has an anchor while they wait. They may still hate the way they wait. They may still be bothered by the delay. They may still be a little bit fearful, but but they have an anchor. They've heard. She's coming. Mom's coming for me. Friends, all this is to say, as you wait. And you hate the waiting. As you're bothered by the delay, the cross is your anchor. He was abandoned so that you would never be abandoned. Never. The cross is the message that we need to hold on to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we are waiting for your answer. (laughs) We are still crying out to you to do something with our circumstances, but we have an anchor as we wait. We have your grace. We We have the cross. And may we look to it and be reminded there that when Jesus cried out, my God, You didn't answer. So that when we cry out, my God, my Holy One, you always answer. You will never leave us or forsake us, as Hebrews 13 says. And may that be a comfort to us every moment of every day as we face this crisis together. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the things that uh, we have been lamenting uh, during this pandemic while we're apart and we can't worship together in person is we're lamenting the fact that we we can't commune together. Uh, Typically, we have communion with one another, uh, sharing the cup and the bread as we share in Christ's life together. And it's, it's been hard to not be able to do that. Um, and I just want us to, 
to think about something as we're in this season. And, and that is, you know, when you fast, and I, I admit I don't know a lot about fasting, but I do know this about fasting. Fasting is meant to create a longing in you. Even uh, uh, the physical uh, hunger that we feel is meant to remind us of a spiritual hunger that we have. That's, that's one of the purposes of fasting. And we're kind of in a, a season of a forced fast right now. But I think it would be good for us to take a moment each Sunday at this time when we're supposed to be doing communion together to just reflect on our longing, our longing for two things. Our longing to be together again and see one another. I don't know about you, but for me, one of my favorite parts of each church service is actually watching the whole congregation go about receiving the bread and the cup so that we can eat it together at the same time. And I long for that. It's a symbol of our unity with one another. And so we, we lament and long to be together. But more importantly, we lament and long to be with our Savior Jesus in that new heavens and the new earth. We're glad that he died and glad that he rose and glad that he ascended and glad that he's interceding. But what we really want is we want to see him. And so let's take a moment to just quietly reflect on that longing and then I'll close that that moment in prayer. Father, we long to be with our Savior Jesus in paradise. To see him face to face, to to fall at his feet and just weep tears of joy and thanksgiving for his sacrifice for us. And we long to be able to do that together in the flesh as brothers and sisters. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Come. Amen.